Amen. Well, good morning and happy Easter, everyone. Can we thank our worship and production teams for that? Wasn't that awesome? So good to be with all of you this morning. Can you believe that it has been two years? It has been two years since we have celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ together like this, celebrated what for me is my favorite holiday, my favorite time of the year. I know that there are some people out there that really love Christmas. We have some Christmas lovers out there right now. A few of you, you start playing Christmas music back in October and your lights are still set up. I get it. I love Christmas, but I really love Easter. In fact, here's a picture of me as a kid really loving Easter. (laughs) Check that out. What a stud, right? Look at my hair. My hair is looking fly in that picture. My best guess on this one is this is Easter 1996 in my family. Those are my three sisters with me. And people ask me, why are your sisters all wearing white lace and you're wearing black? I wasn't dressing myself at this time. And so my best guess is that my mom was not so subliminally telling everyone we met that day that I was the black sheep of the family. My wife, she saw this picture and and she said, and she denies that she said this, but she saw this picture and she said, why do you look like Satan in that picture? Like, that's really hurtful. I look like a dork, but not Satan. Anyway, I love Easter, enough of that picture. I love this time of year. Spring has sprung. Baseball season has started. Go Cubs. The Masters are in just a few days. And and Lord willing, uh, the weather is going to start to warm up a little bit more here in Michigan. And things are going to start to come back to life outside. And isn't, isn't that what today is all about? A celebration of life. Life bursting forth, life making a stand, life making a statement, life over death is what today is all about. That's why I love this holiday. That's why I love Easter, because I love life. And the opposite is true as well. I hate death. I hate death. Don't you hate death? Isn't death the absolute worst? I don't think it's an overstatement. Death Death is the worst. We talked about this on Good Friday. That none of us like talking about it. None of us like thinking about it. And yet death, listen, death looms on the horizon of each and every one of our lives. Death is the unwelcomed guest at the party. Death has played a unique role in our society over the past year, hasn't it? And death takes some of our closest loved ones You know, just a few months ago, I lost my younger cousin unexpectedly to death. Over the last four years, I've lost both of my grandmothers to death. And perhaps most difficult for my family, uh, we lost my younger brother just a few years before that picture was taken um, to death. My younger brother, Kyle, I mentioned that a few weeks ago. After he passed, one of the things that we did as a family that helped us to process the loss and the grief was we continued to celebrate his birthday every year together as a family. And we continued to remember his passing every year. And we would, uh, my parents would pull us out of school on those days and we'd get lunch together. And then we'd go to Kyle's grave and we would share stories about Kyle. Funny stories, sad stories, we'd laugh and we'd cry. And I think that time of sharing those stories was so powerful as we processed that loss and that grief was because as we shared those stories, it was almost like Kyle would come back to life. We would share those stories and it's like his presence would be there with us. You know, another thing that we did during those times of remembering Kyle was we would bring rocks to his grave. 
We'd bring stones and not just rocks that we found on the ground, but stones from trips that we had taken. In fact, here's a picture of his uh, gravestone. And you can see, it's not a great picture, but along the bottom there, you can see some of these stones from trips that we had taken. After uh, Kyle had passed the following summer, we began to take trips to different national parks. And so one summer we went to the Grand Canyon and another we went to the Black Hills and another we went to the Smoky Mountains and we went to Acadia up in Maine. And after every trip, we would bring back these stones because we couldn't bring Kyle with us anymore. And so we would bring back these tangible memories, these physical objects, back to this person that we had lost. We'd remember these things through these stones. And there's, there's something so elemental, so basic about stones. Like this just looks like a normal stone that maybe I found outside, but this is actually a stone from the very river that David would have drawn his stones out from before his battle with Goliath. That's where this stone is from. And all of a sudden, this little physical object has a little bit more meaning. Stones. When's the last time you thought about stones? You're probably like, never. This is the only time I've ever heard anyone talk about stones. And I get that, fair enough. But stones, they're so elemental and so important. They're the building blocks for our buildings, our towers, they're landmarks in nature. We decorate our yards and inside our house with them sometimes, and yet they often go so unnoticed. Stones. Crazy, huh? In ancient cultures, stones were extremely important. I'm talking like two, three, four thousand years ago. Stones were incredibly important. It was like the only thing they had for tools, and it was what they built stuff out of. It's what they even built like weird things that we still don't know what are today, like Stonehenge. We don't know what that is. We just know that it's old and it's made out of stones. Stones were really important to ancient cultures and ancient Israel was no different. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Here's how I want to start our time together this morning. I want to start by going through a brief history of stones in Israel. I know some of you are like, this this is like the first time I'm back in church in a while and it was starting great, but then you started talking about death and stones and Stonehenge and it just feels like it's going off the rails right now. Well, you're kind of right. But just stick with me. This will all make sense in just a minute. And so first of all, a brief history of stones. A brief history of stones in Israel. Stones were important to Israel. And one of the things they used stones for was they used stones as witnesses. They used stones as witnesses. And we see this in Joshua 24. In Joshua 24, Israel is now in the promised land. And it's at the end of the book of Joshua. It's at the end of Joshua's life. And Joshua gathers together the people of Israel to remind them of who their God is and what their God has done. And he reminds them that they were delivered from the hand of Egypt. They were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh and God provided for them while they were in the wilderness. And he has established them in this land and he is faithful. And then he ends and he says this, a now famous verse that might be somewhere up in your house or in your kitchen or in your living room. He says this, he says, choose this day whom you will serve. 
And he says, are you, going to are you going to serve the one true living God, Yahweh, the one who has provided for us, the one who has been faithful, the one who has delivered us, or are you going to serve the gods of this land? And the people are like, oh, we will totally serve the one true God. And Joshua's like, no, you won't. And they're like, no, no, we really, we really will. We promise, we pinky promise, we'll totally serve him. And Joshua's like, you pinky promise? And so he says this, at the end, Joshua 24, 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And he took a, look there, a large stone and set it up under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. And so the stone that Joshua set up, it might've looked something like this. These were some stones that were set up in um, Israel at this place called Gezer. Uh, long before probably Israel even arrived and settled on the land, these aren't the stones that Joshua set up, but Joshua makes this covenant with the people and he sets up a large stone, maybe something like this, to serve as a what? As a as a witness, as a witness. Now, this wasn't the only time in Israel that people set up stones to function as a witness or a testimony, not just against the people of Israel, but they would set up these stones, these large stones, as a witness, as a testimony to God's faithfulness to his people. Different moments where God fulfilled a promise or God came through and moved in a powerful way, they would set up these stones as a witness, as a reminder to his faithfulness. Lest they forget. Because we are a forgetful people, aren't we? They would set up these stones as a testimony. And so just imagine a family walking down the road in ancient Israel and the son or daughter looks at one of these stones and asks, hey, mom, dad, why is that stone right there? We always walk by it. And mom, dad, being able to say, hey, listen, this is where God moved in a powerful way. And we believe he can do it again. Stones as a witness to God's faithfulness. Not only that, but in ancient Israel, they used stones as the dwelling place of God's very presence. Stones as the dwelling place of God's presence. And here's how we see this. So remember, Israel was delivered from her enemies. And in that deliverance, God had set up a way for them to live faithfully to him. And so he did that through giving them instruction by setting up a sacrificial system that was run by the priests. And the epicenter of that was the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle was a tent and it was temporary. And so Israel is now established in the land and it's time for Israel to move beyond the temporary tabernacle towards something more permanent, toward the temple. And maybe it's quite obvious, but the temple was built out of stones. Built out of stones. First Kings chapter five says, at the king's command, and that's King Solomon, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. The house is the temple of 
God. Now, here's the interesting thing about this house, this temple of God. It was not just some mere construction project. It wasn't just some sort of building. This house, this temple of God was meant to function as as a permanent and powerful symbol to represent the presence of God to the people of Israel. This is where they would go and experience the presence of God. It was meant to be any time the people of Israel were were, were to approach Jerusalem and see this temple, it would be as if the Lord was communicating to them, I am here and I am with you and I will never leave you. That's what the temple was meant to be, this dwelling place of God. In fact, the Lord says this in 1 Kings chapter 9. The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time after the temple was finished. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, Solomon, which you have made before me. And so I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name or my presence there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And so what's going on here is the Lord is taking something, just a bunch of mere stones, and he's saying, I dwell here now. This temple made of stones is now my home. So we see here stones used as a dwelling place of God's presence. Part of it might've looked something like this. This is the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem right now. Now, this particular remnant is from the second temple, which was built after Israel came back from exile in Babylon. The the temple we read about in 1 Kings is the first temple. And that actually brings us to the third uh, way we see stones used in the history of Israel, which is as a metaphor for sinful hearts. Stones used figuratively as a metaphor for sinful hearts. You see, this exile and the destruction of this first temple was due to the fact that Israel had rebelled against the one true God and rejected his rule in their lives. The promise that they made with Joshua at Shechem just a few minutes ago, you remember that promise? That we will serve the one true God? They broke that promise. And because of that, they were conquered and led into captivity. But before any of that had happened, God had sent messengers, God had sent servants, God had sent prophets to warn Israel that if they did not return to the Lord and repent of their sinful ways, there would be impending judgment coming their way. Messenger after messenger, he sent their way to no effect though. And they rebelled and they were conquered. Now, one of the messengers that God sent was this guy named Ezekiel, and he came right before the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered and that temple was destroyed. And he prophesies about a coming time beyond the judgment, beyond destruction, where God is going to start to do something new and amazing and powerful. And he's going to give people a new heart and a new spirit. And he prophesies in Ezekiel 36. These are the very words of the Lord. And he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, your sinful, broken heart from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so there it is, 
stone used as a metaphor for sinful hearts, a heart of stone. And so when you think of heart of stone, what do you think about? Do you think about someone's like hard-heartedness, like a stubborn heart, like a cold-hearted person, like a person who refuses to change? Is that what you think of? Because for me, that's what I think of when I see this term heart of stone. But you have to understand that Israel would have had a couple different associations with this idea of heart of stone. Remember, they were enslaved and and captive by the Egyptians for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so Egyptian culture would have greatly influenced Israelite culture. And you see, in Egyptian culture, one of the things they believed was that when you died in the afterlife, your literal physical heart was weighed on a scale. And if it was too heavy, if it was weighed down with wrongdoing and sin and guilt, then you would not enter the afterlife. And so to have a heart of stone was like the worst possible thing you could have. And so what the ancient Egyptians would do, and this is kind of weird, is they would cut open the dead person's chest cavity and they would remove the heart and they would replace it with a stone carving of a, get this, a dung beetle. And it would look like this. Because somehow an insect that rolls around in fecal matter was a better option, right? Why would they do that? Well, according to the Egyptians and their culture, they believed that this dung beetle or scarab was a representative of immortality. And so as the deceased person would go into the afterlife, they would hand them this carved stone and that would gain them entrance. And what God is saying is no, no. But I will secure your eternal future. I will do something new. And I will remove that heart of stone from within you. But I will replace it, not with a dung beetle, but I will replace it with a heart of life. A heart that longs to worship me and obey me and follow me. But how was he going to do this? How was he going to transform and change people's hearts? Because as we can see throughout the history of God's people, God in his graciousness returns back to his people and gives them another chance and another chance and another chance. And yet they reject him each and every time. They do what was right in their own eyes. How was God going to break this cycle of sin? Well, he was going to do it through a stone, but not just any stone, the greatest stone. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out right now. Open up to Psalm 118. Open up to Psalm 118. Verse 24 says this, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so we've heard this verse a few times this weekend. If you read our Good Friday service, you heard us share this verse then. That this is the day, that this is Friday. This is Good Friday. It is the day that the Lord has made. And even though it is full of loss and suffering and sacrifice and death, it is the day that the Lord has made. But it is not for nothing because Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming and now Sunday is here. And this is the day. This is Sunday. This is the day that the Lord has made. And we rejoice and we celebrate. But why do we celebrate like we do? Why can we rejoice like we rejoice on this resurrection Sunday? 
Why can we do confetti cannons? And why do we sing loudly and celebrate? Well, look at verse 22. The answer's right there. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And the answer to our problem is this cornerstone. But what is this cornerstone? What is the psalmist getting at? What does this imagery here have to do with Good Friday and Easter and Jesus and the resurrection? Well, in ancient building techniques, the cornerstone, listen here, the cornerstone was the most important piece of construction. It had to be perfect. Everything else depended on the perfection of the cornerstone. The angle of all the walls was set by the cornerstone. The levelness of all the other stones was set by the levelness of the cornerstone. The cornerstone had to be perfect. It had to be choice. It had to be true. It had to be right. This cornerstone, or else the entire building would be a massive failure. And in one sense, this rejected cornerstone here in Psalm 118, it's Israel. Israel was rejected. They were rejected by Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, and yet they were chosen by God. And so as Israel would sing this psalm around Passover time, they would understand that in part they were the cornerstone, but they were imperfect. They rejected God. They rebelled against God. And so they certainly couldn't be the cornerstone that God was going to build everything off of. And so what was God's plan? Well, God had a bigger plan. God had a better plan for Israel and through Israel. And Israel knew this and they awaited. They looked forward to, they anticipated a coming cornerstone a perfect cornerstone, one who would make every wrong right, one who would restore and recreate God's world, one who would conquer sin and death and injustice once and for all, but one who could be intimately known. Who is this cornerstone? Who is this long-awaited greatest stone? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the long-awaited cornerstone that will make everything right. But is it Jesus just because we want it to be Jesus? No, it's Jesus because Jesus refers to himself as the cornerstone. You see, in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 12, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's on the road, essentially, to, to being crucified, and so he's encountering opposition, namely from the Pharisees and the scribes. And so in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 12, Jesus tells this story. He tells this story about this owner of this piece of land. And this owner who owns this piece of land, he, he plants a vineyard there. He plants a, a garden. And he leases this garden to some tenants. And the tenants work the land and they cultivate the land. And the owner goes away to a distant land. And it comes harvest time and he wants some of the fruit. So he sends a servant to gather some of the fruit from the tenants. And what do they do to the servants? Do you know the story? They beat him. They beat that servant. And so then the owner sends another servant. And what do they do to that servant? They, they beat him as well. And so then the owner sends another servant. And what do they do to that servant? They kill him. So the owner's like, what do I do? I'll send my son. 
They'll listen to my son. Certainly, they'll respect my son. And so the owner sends his son. And what do they do? They reject him. And they kill him. And so at the end of this story, Jesus says this. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? And then what does Jesus quote? He quotes Psalm 118. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so Jesus right here, what he's doing is he is explicitly identifying himself as the cornerstone the stone that was rejected by the builders. And what Jesus is saying is just as the tenants rejected the owner's son, God's people will reject God's son. And sure enough, they do. And Jesus is arrested and he's tried unjustly and he dies a death, the most shameful, awful death you could die. On a Roman cross, and this stone that the builders rejected died and he was buried and his, this is interesting, his grave was sealed with a what? With a stone. And yet that stone couldn't hold back this precious and choice and most powerful cornerstone because this Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, the King of kings. And if we would bend our knee to him today, he could be the King of our hearts. And God raised him from the dead, affirming to everyone that he was the chosen cornerstone, the son of God. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? The apostles, they believed this. They knew this, they believed this, and they proclaimed this. Early in their ministry in Acts, uh, Peter has gotten himself in some hot water with the other disciples, and they find themselves before the Jewish authorities. And Peter says this right to their faces boldly. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. And now listen to this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you believe this? What I find so interesting is that this is Peter who's so bold here. Peter. This Peter who weeks before rejected Jesus, denied having any affiliation or association with Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. What's also so interesting about Peter is that Peter wasn't his birth name. His birth name was Simon, and yet Jesus gave him a new name. In Aramaic, it's Cephas, but we have the Greek version of it, which is Petros, which means what? It means rock or stone. Peter, rock. 
the stone. And Peter was one of the first apostles to boldly profess faith in this Jesus, declaring that Jesus, you are the long awaited Messiah. You are the Christ. And in response to Peter's affirmation of faith in him as the long awaited Messiah, Jesus says this to him. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And you know what? Even though Peter denied, rejected Jesus three times, and even though Peter would go on to make more missteps in his life and in his ministry, Jesus would powerfully use Peter to accomplish his purposes. Do you want to know why? Because our Jesus is faithful. He is faithful. Even when we are faithless and he is compassionate and he is loving and he is generous to those who are lost, to those who are confused, to those who are doubting, to those who hurt, to those whose hearts have grown cold to him. He is loving and faithful to those who have completely rejected him and walked away from him. And some of you need to hear this this morning, that this Jesus, he is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh chances. That there is no sin so great that will keep you from his even greater love. And that the door is wide open to enter into a relationship with this risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful. His word says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And listen, we are not merely saved from something. We are, and it's amazing, We are saved. When we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, we are saved from eternal separation from this loving God. But we are also saved to something. Not just from something, but we are saved to something. We are brought into this family of God. We are brought into this people. And we are brought into this work that God is doing here on this earth, this new thing that he is doing that no one and nothing can stop and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Don't you want to be a part of that? And if you are a part of that, aren't you so grateful that you're a part of this? This family of faith that gets to celebrate our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a blessing, what a gift, what an honor, what a joy. And there's no surprise here, but it's Peter again. It's Peter who I think communicates these truths so compellingly and so awesome. And he does this in his, in his first letter in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there real quick. 1 Peter chapter 2, he wrote this letter to some churches that were undergoing suffering and persecution in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey right now. And he's writing this letter of encouragement to them. And in 1 Peter chapter two, starting in verse four, he he writes this. He says, as you come to him, Jesus, look here, this living stone 
rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. In this part, look at this. When we come to Jesus, look at what happens to us. Verse five, you yourselves are like living stones. So we too now are stones, but we are like this family of stones and we are being built up as a spiritual house. And so again, this is just another way of saying temple the spiritual temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then in verses six through eight, Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16, and he quotes that familiar verse that we've spent some time in Psalm 118, verse 22. And then he writes this in verse nine. He says, and you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim, that you may testify to, that you may be a witness, a witness to the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into a marvelous light. And so what we see here is that when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, he brings us into this family and creates out of us and he makes us these family of living stones. Remember at the very beginning, I said all of this discussion about stones was gonna make sense and that we were talking about the history of stones in Israel for a purpose. What were the three things we saw? We saw that Israel used stones as a metaphor for sinful hearts. We saw that Israel used stones as the dwelling place for God's very presence. And we saw that Israel used stones to function as witnesses to the faithfulness of God. And what's so awesome about this passage here, written by Peter, by Petras, in 1 Peter chapter 2, this is so compelling and so awesome because he explains this new work that God is doing through the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, that no longer is God going to use lifeless stones to accomplish his purposes anymore. He is going to use living stones to accomplish his very purposes. People who have placed their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. He is doing a new thing, an unstoppable work. And so when we place our faith in Jesus, he heals our hearts. That's one thing Jesus does. He heals our hearts. No longer do we have hearts of stone when we place our faith in Jesus. No longer are our hearts weighed down by sin and shame and guilt, but we are given new hearts. No longer are we defined by who we once were. No longer are we defined by the mistakes of our past, but we are now defined by who Jesus says we are. We are clothed and wrapped in his righteousness and we are able to, as what Peter says, we are able to, in verse four, come to him. These new hearts allow us to draw near to this God. Jesus, our great high priest, makes a way for us to boldly approach the throne of God. The prophecy that Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 36 has been fulfilled. And the proof of this fulfillment is right here. It is in the very people of God. Our hearts have been healed. He has given us new hearts, removed our hearts of stone, hearts that long to be near to him, hearts that long to love him and obey him and worship him. 
Hearts that are no longer weighed down by our past, but hearts that anticipate our great future with Jesus. And so he heals our hearts, but not only that, when we place our faith in Jesus, he dwells with us. He dwells with us. Look again at verse five. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so again, this concept of a spiritual house was meant to represent a temple. And so many of the Jews at this time would have been scattered around the Roman Empire. Jews who are now part of this church, who had professed faith in this Jesus and were now following his way, would have longed, listen, they would have longed to be back in Jerusalem because why? That's where God's presence promised to dwell. That's where they would want to be. And what Peter is saying here is he's saying, God is still faithful to that promise that he will dwell in his temple. But there's a new temple. And no longer is that temple located in a physical place like Jerusalem. No longer is God's presence relegated to just heaven, but God's presence is wherever and whenever the people gather together to lift high the name of Jesus and glorify him with praises. That we don't have to go to a specific place to experience the presence or power of God. But listen, church, the presence of God is right here. Through the power of his Holy Spirit. We are his temple. And when we place our faith in Jesus, he, he promises to dwell with us. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. He is always with you. We have that promise in one another. We are his temple. So he heals our hearts. No longer do we have hearts of stone. We are his temple. No longer do we have to go somewhere to experience the power of God. Not only that, he calls us, he calls us to be witnesses to his faithfulness. He calls us to be witnesses to his faithfulness. Remember in ancient Israel, they would set up those stones, right? They set up those stones to be witnesses, to be a testimony to God's faithfulness at different places and different movements of the Lord. But look again at verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, that you, that you may proclaim, that you may be a testimony, that you may be a witness to the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into a marvelous light. And so no longer is God going to use lifeless stones to accomplish this anymore. He's gonna use you. He's gonna use you. He's gonna use you. As we testify to, we are a witness to the excellencies of what God has done. And don't so many of us have stories of how God has moved in awesome ways in our lives. Can you remember the stories? Can you remember the ways in which God has moved in powerful ways? How he has moved you from darkness to light seasons, times of your life where there was such great loss and sorrow and pain, and who was there with you the entire time? Jesus, the risen Lord. Times of great darkness where you were pursuing after what you wanted, sin, your way, your desires, your pleasure. Who drew you from that pit? 
Who redeemed your life? It was Jesus. And what did he give you? He gave you new life. We are to be witnesses, a testimony to what God has done and what God continues to do in and through us, this family of living stones. And it's only made possible because Jesus has once and for all conquered sin and death. And so would we testify to the fact that our God is not dead, that he is alive and he has healed our hearts and he dwells with us now. His presence is here with us now. So how can we help but testify with our lives and with our lips of his faithfulness and of his love and of his greatness to testify that he is risen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful, so grateful for you. We are grateful that you did what none of us could do. That you did in one weekend what it would take for us an eternity to accomplish. Thank you for giving us new life. Thank you for graciously, time and time again, reaching out to us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has never surrendered their life to you. I pray that they would know that the door is wide open and that when we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that you are Lord, that you redeem us and you save us from darkness and you move us to your kingdom of light and you heal our hearts, you seal us with your spirit and dwell with us. Lord, I pray for the person who is far from you right now, who has wandered away, pursuing their own desires, their own pleasure, their own will, their own way. They be reminded that you are a God of second, third, fourth chances. That your arms are wide open to them in this place. That you are faithful to your promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be stirred from our time this morning of singing your praises and hearing from your word, that we would go forth on this Resurrection Sunday with the new life that we carry. And would we boldly be witnesses testifying to your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives? Would we not waste the precious time we have here on this earth to testify that Lord Jesus, you are the risen Lord, you are the cornerstone, and we love you and we are so grateful for all you've done. We pray this in your very powerful name. 